This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. Members, please be on alert for picket duty at the Met Opera on Monday, August 18th. That was the latest message from the Twitter account of IATSE, the union representing stagehands and other backstage workers at the Metropolitan Opera. It was at least one signal of where things currently stand in the contentious dispute between the opera company and 12 of its unions. So, where will this all end up, and how are the different parties making their cases? We will get three views on this today. On the phone is Drew McManus, an arts consultant who writes the blog Adaptistration. In the studio are Lois Spear Gray, a professor of labor management relations emerita at Cornell University, and James Jordan, editor of the opera blog Parterrebox. He recently wrote about this for the New York Observer. The Met has pushed the contract deadline to Sunday night because the federal mediator ordered a third-party financial analyst to examine its books. So what do we expect to come out of that? I mean, if you want a prediction of how it will turn out, I'll be glad to tell you that. Um, I think for right now, the negotiations will continue and the, the parties will come closer and closer together. Whether this will actually finish by Sunday, I don't know. But my guess is that even if there is movement by Sunday, then the, the deadline for the lockout will be moved as well. Drew, what's your take on this? Well, I think that's fairly close. Uh, it's just whether or not the employer is going to institute the lockout they've been talking about in the press, because that will make the situation go from tense to destructive in very short time. Lois, you have dealt all your life in labor relations. Why set a deadline at all? Why not just keep on talking and preparing for the season without a contract? IATSE has told us in an email that they would be willing to do that. Uh, yes, I think the unions would be willing. In this case, the Metropolitan Opera, its board of directors and Peter Gelb, want quicker action. In other words, they've decided that they want concessions and they don't want to continue unless they get major concessions. At least that's what Peter Gelb is quoted as saying. I, I can understand the idea that the Met wants to move things along and not have the negotiations going up right until the moment that the season starts. I mean, we're, what, a month away from the start of the season now? Maybe five weeks? I guess five weeks as of earlier this week. And so I can understand why they want to get this wrapped up, get people's minds focused on the season to come. Even though I, I, I think it's a very good sign that rehearsals are going on at the Met. Right at this moment, people are rehearsing uh, Nazi de Figaro and Death of Klinghoffer and everything else that will be happening earlier in the season. You know, that's because the unions hope to continue working maybe without a contract because they're not ready for this deadline. They're not ready to make the concessions in any case. Well, a source from one of the unions told us off the record there is virtually no chance of a deal by this deadline. Well, th that, that we can agree with. By, by the 17th, probably not. But unless some kind of deadline is set, I, I don't think there's that much motivation for people to, to work. I think one of the reasons that the uh, Met is taking the position of forcing an early deadline before this season starts is that during the season it would be the leverage would be more on the part of the union to call a strike while the production is on. Right. I mean that they're trying to choose their date. Right. 
Correct. Well, and, and all of this circles around to the fact of, of using deadlines as bargaining leverage, where in uh, recent years, since the economic downturn, the traditional bargaining landscape really has changed fundamentally, although in some ways it's remained exactly the same. In the Mets case, it's really more of the latter, so it's more of a traditional scenario. Um, whereas in other situations, deadlines have also been tied to very real, verified cash shortages, where an institution will literally run out of money. So the deadline in those cases has a very different impact, whereas in this case, it's clear, I think, to all parties that there's a great deal of tension, there's a great deal of contention involved, so why add more stress to an already difficult situation. The only people who really end up losing in that situation are the ticket buyers and the patrons. Whereas if you continue to do what they're doing now, which is called playing and talking, continuing to work under the terms of the previous agreement, that there's no way that can continue indefinitely. So this this deadline adds that artificial tension. And does the organization really benefit from that as a whole? There has been a lot of sound and fury from all sides in the press, and it's really been played out in public a lot. The one group that has been, that is usually the loudest, that has been the quietest in this case, is the big stars of the Met, except for Deborah Voigt, who tweeted that she really hoped for a compromise. Now, why would not AGMA, the Singers Union, sort of call on its big guns, the big stars, to take a more public role? Oh, I don't think you will ever see that happen. <laughs> At least in this situation, it's going to be rare. Their individual management and representation is negotiating their contract, and that is a very, well, let's just say that's very much a for-profit commercial enterprise. And, and another point here, I think, is that uh, at least, you know, from, from what I hear, there's a real division in AGMA between the principals and, say, chorus stage managers, dancers, and others who are uh, other groups that are represented by AGMA. The principals, I hear a lot of complaints from principal singers that AGMA really doesn't do a whole lot for them. But then again, you know, singers do complain a lot. But that AGMA is basically a, a, a chorus union, Whereas, so so I don't know that there would be that much enthusiasm on the part of the principals to say, oh, yes, we really need to support AGMA. Because as, as Deborah Voigt pointed out in her, her, her tweet, she said, the only thing AGMA has done for me is taken 2% of every contract I've had for the past 30 years. That may be an exaggeration, but uh, I think this is an, an attitude that a lot of singers have. The union- Which is in contrast to uh, the actors' unions and, and commercial theater and uh, film and television where the stars have generally supported the union. Right, there's a lot of solidarity there. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, a book that I published back in 1996 was called Under the Stars, Labor Relations in the Arts and Entertainment Industry, in which I attributed much of the bargaining power of the unions to the fact that they were supported by stars, and while the, pl- the bit players could be replaced, the stars couldn't. The union's mm-hmm. PR strategy in mm-hmm. all of this has been to demonize the Mets general manager, Peter Gelb. How do you think that strategy is working? James? I don't know that it's changed anyone's mind about Peter Gelb. I think Peter was, was or Mr. Gelb was um, a, a polarizing figure already. And so people had decided that they were on one side or on the other 
on what he's doing at the Met. And so while this may have sort of increased the friction between the two sides, I don't think it's changed anyone's mind about how Peter Gelb does his job at the Met. Drew? It's an interesting strategy. Uh, In the larger picture, you always have to look at that end game, which is we need to reach a deal. And it's, it's worth pointing out and noticing that the animosity that's being directed toward Gelb has not been directed toward the organization's board of directors. They've been pretty much off limits, and I haven't seen really any negative statements from unions other than just a couple of small individual things here and there. Why do you uh, think but, that is? Well, and that's that end game, is you have to have a way for either side to save face. And in this case, I think what they're really moving toward, or at least what I'm observing, is by not attacking the board and focusing on Gelb instead, is it doesn't tarnish the board's reputation for governance. Because if they decide to meet the musicians on some of the concessions with Gelb's management style, that's really more oversight, which is what their job is supposed to be, is they want the institution to be more fiscally responsible with its risk-return ratio. And that is has been the Met's strategy, saying that everybody involved needs to tighten their belts to keep the House open at all. Has the Met effectively made that case to the public? Well, I'm not sure, because um, opera and classical music traditionally has always been subsidized. It's never paid for itself. In other countries, it's subsidized by the government. Here, it's subsidized by uh, patrons and donors. And so that hasn't really changed. Going back to the union's charges about Gelb, I give it a little different interpretation. The union uh, has put the blame on the rising costs on Gelb's decision, certain types of decisions, to run longer operas, to run new operas that are more expensive, as opposed to the labor cost. And so they're actually posing that as a counter-argument in a way that the company, and maybe appealing to the board of directors, the way that the company could save money would be to cut back on these expensive decisions. Well, James, you just wrote about Mm. that these decisions were in your mind, good decisions that Peter Gelb has been making. Uh, Right. I mean, I I applaud Mr. Gelb's boldness. Mm -hmm. I think he could be bolder in in what he does. Mm -hmm. There are some decisions that my my colleague, Don Fatale at at Parterre.com, call rookie mistakes. As, as for example, uh, two seasons ago, Don Carlo and Parsifal were in the repertoire at the same time. And that's never going to work at the Met because they're both extremely long operas in which the chorus is on stage at the beginning and the end of the opera. So there's going to be a large amount of overtime for doing either one of these operas at any time. But both of them at the same time mean that the overtime costs are going to go through the roof. Now, why these were scheduled in the repertoire at the same time, I'm not really sure. But it's the kind of scheduling problem that is faced when you're when you're a general manager. Even though you want to do these two operas at the same time, and it's the kind of thing you want to program, you may not be able to do it because it's just simply not going to work out financially. And this has been one of the big bones of contention, I guess, it, all along, or at least out in the public, is the perception that some of the musicians, singers, are being paid a lot which they say is because the overtime is kicking in, which is in the contract to protect them so that they aren't overworked. Is that 
Well, it, it, it's hard to say. You know, I don't have a copy of the chorus contract or the, or the orchestra contract. All we can do is go by the figures that are, are given out by AGMA and given out by the Met. I mean, the one thing that I notice is that nobody makes base pay, that everybody's pay includes a very large amount of overtime every single year. So that seems to be built into the system that you're going to be dealing with 25, 35, 45 percent of the compensation at least being overtime because that's how the contracts are structured. Drew, does that seem to be a good way to structure a contract to you? Well, I think we're moving in the right direction with looking at what the fundamental problems are at the Met. And it does come back to that risk-return ratio. If you schedule a number of productions that are going to incur a known amount of additional expenses, whether it be through overtime or having to hire additional musicians and singers and dancers, then you have to look at what you're going to get out of that. And in the Mets case, it's been declining audience numbers, declining ticket sales, to which point for an organization that compared to its peers actually has a very high earned income ratio, which is the amount of money they raise via something like ticket sales. I believe it's in the the 45% range. So when you have that kind of drop in income balanced with these sharp increases in expenses due to executive decision-making, you end up with the kind of shortfalls that the Met has been expressing. And so now where the organization is arguing is whether or not those shortfalls are due to the executive decision-making process, or is it inherently some sort of structural problem that the Met's defined as the labor costs are too expensive and they need to be permanently adjusted at a lower figure. So the bottom line in all of this, the Met does have to cut costs. How do we see that happening? Well, does it have to cut costs or does it have to raise more money? Because this is an issue for symphony orchestras throughout the United States where there have been all the shutdowns. And uh, it's true of the whole cultural sector of, of entertainment. It doesn't pay for itself. Only one cent out of every dollar that Americans spend on entertainment is spent on what would be called cultural entertainment. I mean, another point that I'd like to bring out here is that this series of bargaining sessions really is an anomaly in how the Met does business in the sense that there hasn't been a labor action at the Met since 1980. So that's that's a whole generation of really smooth working between management and labor. So I think it's it's only to be expected that when management takes a different position from the position management has been taken for 30 years or more, that there's going to be a lot of resistance to it. And so the, it's going to be very dramatic no matter how you take it on. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And uh, we have to keep in mind that these nonprofit boards of directors are made up of many people who are in business, and uh, the the shift from strikes to lockout is a general trend in management posture in the United States in the last 20 or 30 years, that strikes have declined and lockouts have increased. Right. I mean, the, the, last, uh-huh. the last labor action at the Met back in 1980 was also a lockout. Yes, I know that. Mm-hmm. So is there going to be a lockout on Monday morning? Is there going to be a Met season? My prediction is that there's not going to be a lockout on Monday. There will not be a lockout at any time, and there will be a contract by Labor Day. Drew? I'm not always comfortable trying to make these sorts of predictions, but I think 
the answer is going to be an increase in revenue and concessions. That's a pretty standard formula that's being applied across the board successfully at a number of arts groups. I have yet to encounter, except for very few small situations, where the employees have not understood that there's going to be some sort of concession. And they come to the bargaining table prepared for this. In some cases, their initial offers include it. Is the Met strategy so far from what we've gathered uh, in news reports has been that they've adopted what's known as a zero-sum bargaining strategy, which is here's our proposal of cuts that we have. Here's the dollar or percentage amount you want to look at it. And we're willing to talk about where those cuts can happen with inside the structure, but it still has to be this number. We're not going to move off this number. If the Met continues to adopt that policy and won't budge at all, the likelihood for a lockout, I think, is very high. If they're willing to move out of that into a different area that at least some of the unions publicly have been pushing for, Aotsi has made some of their proposal terms known, then it's, it's far more likely that we'll see an extended play and talk period that will ultimately result in a contract that will avoid a lockout. No, lockout I, agree, on- I agree with Drew's analysis. Also, I agree that there won't be a lockout on Monday morning. I think there will be further negotiations. Uh, But the parties are very far apart, and so I don't see a settlement unless the Met is willing to come way down on its demands and settle for something like the Broadway strike when the stagehands shut down Broadway. The uh, the producers and, and owners, theater owners there, Hope for major concessions from stage ends one and got very minor concessions. Well, we'll all see if anybody jumps on a horse and rides into the flames on (laughs) Monday morning. Thank you all for joining us. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were arts consultant Drew McManus, labor scholar Lois Gray, and writer and editor James Jordan. Brian Weiss is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.